All right, so can I paint a picture for you guys real fast? Uh, imagine there is uh, just a chasm that you have to get across. Uh, and you're standing there, and there's a bridge before you. What do you do? Do you A, uh, attempt to build a bridge of your own? Uh, do you B, attempt to build upon the bridge that's already there? Do you C, uh, trust that the bridge could carry you across? Or do you D, trust it with your life as you take those steps on and over to the other side? Uh, that's a question that's really important for all of us. And so I encourage you to keep that picture in mind as we talk today. If I remember to, maybe we'll get back to it. Uh, hopefully we will. Um, but, but I think that um, that question and your answer will become clear as you ponder that as we talk about this topic this morning. Uh, so we're in week two of our new series we're calling The Elements of Renewal. Last week, Evan reminded us of our need for it, and now it's my task to remind or to teach us about one of its elements. And so this morning, we're talking about justification. And so for those who don't know, justification is the doctrine answering the question of how unholy sinners can come to stand and live before a holy God. So in other words, justification is the doctrine of how one is declared or made righteous. And listen, how you answer this question radically affects and determines what you believe about things like humanity, who we are, uh, about sin and about salvation. And so in many respects, your answer to this question affects what gospel you believe to be true. And so needless to say, this element of renewal is really important. And it's so important, in fact, that of the 25 sessions that occurred during the Council of Trent in the 1500s, number six was entirely devoted to this topic, and many would argue that it was one of the most, if not the most significant in separating the Reformers from the Roman Catholic Church. And so this is really important, and so this morning, I'm not going to be able to dive too heavily into all the different understandings and that entire debate, but instead it will be my goal that all of us walk away either reminded or convinced that there is nothing that we have done or could do to earn the promises of God, but instead that Jesus is the only one who could and has and done everything to make good on God's promises to us. But I also want us to be a people who are obedient to Christ, not because we think it gets us anything, not because we believe that obedience saves us, but because we truly believe and recognize what we've already been given. And so I want us to see and believe that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. And so this morning, I want us all to consider, do you believe that Christ and his cross are enough? And if so, how does your life prove that? And so in our text this morning, we're going to look at um, two major arguments that others have brought to the Galatians on this topic because they argue that faith in Christ's cross isn't enough. And then we'll see the two objections that Paul makes to those arguments, and then we'll see how he corrects them. And so right off the bat, here's those two arguments that these false teachers bring to the church. And so first they say that in order to be a part of God's people, you have to have faith, yes, but you also have to become an Israel. You have to become like them. 
because after all, the Jews are God's people. Jesus is their Messiah. And so second, they say that in order to receive the promises that God made to his people, you not only have to become one of them, but you have to live according to their laws, their rules. And so at first glance, this seems reasonable. There's a reason that the Galatians began to fall for these arguments. And so you know, they're like, for something like a thousand years, God had worked uniquely through the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. He gave them the law through Moses. He gave them the land of Canaan. He set up his tabernacle with them in the desert. He set up his temple with them in Jerusalem. He spoke to their kings and he gave them his prophets. The Messiah, the Savior, the Christ was going to be born to them. So what more evidence do you need that God has special favor for these people? Of course, if you want to be close to God, you have to go where he so obviously is. And of course, to be uh, where God is, you have to be accepted by the people that he accepts. And so obviously, you have to do what his people do, my house, my rules. But this is what these teachers are telling the Galatians. And, and so again, like seemingly, what could be wrong with that? Uh, so as we open up our Bibles this morning, we can see what Paul thinks about this line of thinking. And so we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 3, right in verse uh, 1. And he says, O foolish Galatians. So there you go. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Do you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul goes after their ideas, and he, he looks at these passage, uh, these people, and he rhetorically asks this question, do you really think that you've received the promised spirit and his gifts by works of the law, or is it by hearing with faith? And so, so Paul goes, he's asking them, I mean, what on earth do you think makes you worthy of the spirit of God? And yes, are you that foolish to think that after receiving this spirit by promise that you can rely on yourself for all that comes after? Do you think that you can make yourself perfect, that you can make yourself righteous? And so essentially he's asking, how is that working for you so far? And so Paul's challenging them as he points to uh, the, this, the, the text and, and the narratives that come before and the law and all those who were there, the prophets. He says, name one person, one prophet, one Israelite who, who did miraculous things by the power of the law instead of by faith and the power of the Spirit. And of course, the answer is no one, and they can't. And so pr- uh, he criticizes these teachers before raising even really his first objection. And, and so Paul gives um, clear objection to their claim that you have to be an Israelite to be God's people. And, and so this is how he does that beginning in verse 6. He says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, 
the man of faith. So Paul in this chapter, he takes the Galatians all the way back to Genesis and to Abraham, to the father of God's people, that this one man that God made what, what I call the promise, the capital P promises too. And, and so if you don't know yet the promises that I'm referring to, I need you to pay attention Write these things down. I've showed you guys this before. I probably talk about it a lot, so this is good review for some of you. But, but we're going to look at uh, uh, three instances of these promises as they develop that God gives to Abraham. And so first, in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, here's what happens. God tells Abraham to leave everything that he knows and to go, and God promises to lead him then to a land that he will give him as an inheritance and that God will make him a great nation so that he'll be a blessing to the world, that he and all the families of the earth would be blessed through this man. So Abraham packs up and he goes. And then in Genesis 15, four through six, God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises Abraham that he'll give him a son and that one day all the sons of Abraham, all of his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. In verse six, he believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham is declared justified, righteous. And then in Genesis 17, four through eight, God promises that Abraham will be the father of many nations and that God will be their God and they will be his people in that land of promise forever. And so that's the capital P promise. Genesis 17, if ever there was a passage to remember, it's this one. And, and so God promises a land, and then he promises a people, and then he promises a multiple, uh, multiple of, of people in one land with one God forever. That's the promise. So God promises Abraham that he'll be the father of these multiple nations who will come together in this one land, and God will be their God. And so if you don't catch this, here's what, what, what Paul's glaring objection is to the claim that you have to be of Israel to be God's people. First, that Abraham himself predates this future people. So God promises to him this future people, but Abraham's also counted among them. And, and then second, that this was a promise always for a multitude of nations within the family of God. And so Paul quotes Genesis 15 to illustrate the way you become one of God's people is the same way Abraham did, through faith and not through whatever nation or people group you belong to, certainly not by any law, there isn't one yet. And in Genesis 17, the full promise is revealed and made by God. And so only after this promise is made and the sign is given, then does the law come. So how does a promise made to a Gentile and for many peoples become applicable one day to only one nation? That's objection one. So Paul shows him that the promise is not only for the Jews, but for every person who believes in the promises of God. And so justification is for all who hear and believe. And then Paul gives his second objection and correction. And we look at that in uh, verse 10. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified uh, before God by law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them 
shall live by them. So listen, if you know what book Paul just cited there, I owe you a prize. But Paul in these three verses goes back and he not only quotes from the very law that these agitators are trying to impose on new believers, but then he quotes from the prophet Habakkuk to prove that the promises were never dependent on adherence to the law. That the promise instead came through faith just as they always have. And and so Paul, throughout all the book, is confronting these false teachers that came into the church. And so again, as a recap, they say, hey, in order to be accepted by God, you have to become like us. And not only do you have to become like us, but in order to receive God's promises and for the cross to be effective for you, you have to abide by all the law. So that if you don't become like us and you don't follow these rules, then God doesn't want you and neither do we. And so Paul hears that this is happening in the church and he's angered and he writes this letter to rip that teaching apart and he gives them the truth that, listen, there's no nation in the world, there's no people that you have to become a part of to be accepted as one of God's or to be a son of Abraham and the promises of God are received through nothing but faith alone in grace alone as a gift of God so that there is nothing you can do to earn what God gives as a gift. And in fact, according to his law and according to his prophets, that if you attempt to work to gain those promises, you'll not only lose out, but you're putting yourself under a curse. And so this is why Paul is so aggressive in this letter, because there are people trying to rebuild the veil that Christ tore down. And these people aren't just adding to the gospel, but they're in fact destroying it. And so Paul refuses to tolerate this teaching And so he corrects them and presents the Galatians with the truth, verse 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Amen. So according to the law, in order to live by the law, you have to keep it. But not one of us is able to do that. So instead, we're condemned by the law and it becomes a curse for us. But the gospel message that Paul is defending and I'm preaching is that for our sake, he made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That the law, though perfect and good, curses us because none of us are able to keep it. But Christ in love, while we are still sinners, chose to take our sin and its curse in exchange. He gives us his righteousness so that just like Abraham believed God's promises and was declared righteous, you and I come and believe in the works of his action and the promises of Christ and, and be declared and made righteous because of what he's done for us and this makes us sons of Abraham as promised children of God from a multitude of nations who will one day dwell with God as his people in that land of promise forever because God makes good on his promises so if you believe in the God of Abraham then you believe in this promise which Jesus did and is and will bring to its full fruition so that all who believe are made heirs and children of promise, which is why Paul concludes this argument in verse 18. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So justification is a promise received by faith in the one who gives it. Do you believe that this morning? So here's Paul's argument so far, and I wanted to take some time to really walk through that because I think it's so important, and there's so many ways that we fall into the same kinds of traps that the Galatians did, and our perspective gets skewed, and I need us to see that so that we can all call it out when it raises its head, or we start to lie to ourselves, or when we start to doubt and we start to put the same pressure on ourselves or others that that there's something we must do to be accepted by God. And see, some people believe and they teach, like these adversaries in Galatia, that you must have faith, yes, but you also have to live and do specific things to become recipients of justification. And so this is the idea that you need to have faith, but you also have to have work before you can be justified. And so that picture, because I remembered, uh, that bridge, right? Do you need to add to the bridge that already is there? Is there anything that you can add to make that bridge stronger? Is there anything you have to add or, or that bridge will fail? That's the question. And so these, these people will go on and they'll point to passages like James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, where James also points to Abraham and asks, was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And he goes on to say that indeed a person is justified by works and not faith alone. That's verse 22 through 24. And that sounds pretty contradictory to everything that Paul just wrote. But listen, we have to read that in context. And so James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, listen to what he says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by, the work, by works when he offered his son Isaac on the, earth, uh, the altar? So you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteous. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That was a lot. So at first glance, Paul and James seem to be at complete odds with each other. So much so that for reformers like Luther, in, in, in his life, for a long time, he was opposed to considering James even a part of canon. But as he matured and studied, he too recognized how both Paul and James actually agree with one another. 
See, as you read James in context, you should see that James' words come as a response to a different question. Where Paul is explaining how justification is a work of faith alone, James is explaining what true faith looks like. Where Paul vigorously defends faith as the only prerequisite for justification, James, with equal passion, challenges his listeners to test their faith that it's true and alive, active, not dead. And so James speaks to people who claim faith and says that if their faith is only an act of the mouth, it's not true. Word alone is useless. But when you truly believe and are justified and transformed, your, your faith inevitably leads into good works. So that James answers the question, what does faith look like? And he says that true faith is active and alive. So that together the conclusion that Paul and James come to is that it is one which is summarized well, I believe, by John Calvin in response to that sixth council in Trent where he says, it is therefore faith alone which justifies. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. And he gives this example. Just as the heat alone of the sun warms the earth, yet in the sun uh, yet the sun is not alone because it continually is conjoined with light. And, and so to put this in, into it, that simple equation, the apostles together teach us that the fruit of faith alone is a justification with works. So that true faith and justification are vindicated and justified and proven to be true by the works that follow. And so right here, this is where the divide in the church happened and why I'm stressing it now. Because what side of this equation you put one's work determines what gospel you believe to be true. So this morning, do you believe that you must work to earn God's love? Or do you work because he loved you first? And so Paul's message is so vital for us because despite our attempts to obey the law, the reality is we will never be able to make ourselves righteous enough for him. But what a blessing it is to know that despite our failures and our shortcomings, God's promises will prevail because they're not dependent on anything that we've done or could do, but only on the grace of God and his work and righteousness given to us on our behalf. He built the bridge already. And so every time we think that we have to work to earn forgiveness or access his promises, we're telling Christ that his cross wasn't enough. That we need to and we think that we can add to what he's already done. And there's so many of us here this morning who are struggling and wrestling with that reality. Listen, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And the only thing that our works earn us is a curse. But Christ took and crucified our failures on the tree. And he buried them with him for three days. And he left them there in his resurrection. And in its place, he hands us his righteousness as a gift. Christ gives us his spirit who testifies to ours that we are children of God, sons of Abraham, through faith. So this morning, I want to encourage you to have faith, not just in the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciliation you have to God, the Father through Christ, but also in those capital P promises of God. 
because it's a promise for you and for your offspring forever. And so this morning I want to remind you of these promises that for those who believe, you know that the battle with sin ends with victory because Christ had victory. For those who believe, you know that there's no reason to fear death because for us it's only temporary. That the curse that it once was is now nothing more than an inconvenience and the resurrected life that comes after will be perfect and forever. Christ's cross is enough to cure any curse we feel we're under. And there's no law and there's no sin and there's no people that can keep you from receiving your part in his kingdom and his family if you believe. But listen, true faith means actually surrendering to Christ as Lord and pursuing his will instead of your own. Not perfectly, we already established that we can't but genuinely and motivated by love for the one who died and rose for you. Jesus in John 14 says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And in Luke 7, he asks, why do you call me Lord, yet do not do what I tell you? Paul points to Abraham to show that God makes good on his promises and that all that's required is this faith alone to credit to you righteousness. And James points to Abraham to show what truly justified people look like. And listen, Abraham, who went where God called him, is the same Abraham who kept going and left the land for Israel. Abraham, who God promised a son, was also unfaithful to his wife and even gave her away twice. Abraham, who was given a son, is the same man who attempted to have his other son killed in the desert. Yet at the same time, Abraham is the same man who believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So Abraham's works never got him even remotely close to righteousness. But his faith and his willingness to pursue God and to trust God accredited to him righteousness. So we see in him that justification is this element of renewal that begins in faith, it's finished in Christ and vindicated, proven true by a life pursuant of obedience to God, not perfectly, but sincerely. And it's so easy to believe the lie that we must work for salvation, and it's even easier to believe that faith is merely living how we want, trusting that God will forgive us. And listen, I do that too. But the truth is that God's work alone is what brings justification. God built the bridge. There's nothing that we have to do to add to it. It will carry us to the other side, but we have to be willing to trust him with our life, to stand on that bridge, believing that it will carry us there. And that's what faith looks like. So this morning, do you believe that Christ's cross is enough? And if so, how does your life prove it? And today, do you believe that you must work to earn God's love, or do you work because he loved you first? Your answer to this question should impact the way you live because true faith is always accompanied by works. 
not because they save, but because of the natural result of a justified and transformed life. And we should be a people whose lives reflect the freedom that's granted by the promises of God, given as a free gift to those who would trust him to make good like he always does. And I know right now some of you are looking at your lives and worried that you haven't done enough. Or you feel that you've messed up way too much for God to ever accept you. And I just need to encourage you that, that God's used and accepted way worse people. And he's done amazing things through these people. Just look at Abraham and you'll see that that's true. But I also know that there's others here who look at the same Abraham and, and, and the promises of God and you use them to justify your actions such that you think you can live how you want and that God has to forgive you. And in love, I wanna warn you to be careful and to seriously consider if your faith is genuine, if it's alive or dead. Because the same James that warns about the reality, uh, uh, warns about the reality of deceiving yourself And it's the same Paul that tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Like what you believe about this element of renewal and and how you live in light of it is no joke. And so as we continue this morning, as you go into your weeks, reflect on these things, take comfort in God's grace. He built the bridge and, and it's there as a gift, but also don't take it for granted. Take comfort in God's grace and gifts, but never take them for granted. And so with that, let's pray.